At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, I have got a fantastic guest for you today, Mr. Bob Kolhep. Bob joined Centus Corporation in July 1967 as a controller. Over a span of 50 years with Centus, he was promoted to positions of general manager, vice president, and treasurer, executive vice president, president, and CEO, then served as vice chair and board chair until retiring in 2016. Additionally, Bob has served on several association, corporation, nonprofit, and university boards. We're going to be talking today about his book, uh, Building a Better Organization. So folks, join me in welcoming Bob Colehep to the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Bob, thanks for being with us. Earl, thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm excited to, to have this conversation with you. My listeners know I say that about all my guests and they know I mean it. But I'm really excited about this one because kind of the, the subtitle to your book, Build a Better Organization, is how effective leadership and strong culture can create a high-performance organization. And so with that in mind, I'm really interested to hear how you answer the question I start all my guests out with. When you hear the term responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Well, it means to me, uh, I guess, first of all, honesty and integrity. I think you have to be honest with people and you have to uh, walk the talk that you're preaching. I see so many organizations that uh, have wonderful things in their annual report, but they don't, in fact, do them every day. Uh, I think humility is another part of important leadership. By humility, I mean recognizing that uh, the people doing the work know more about what's going on than the boss ever will. And therefore, the boss has to be humble enough to go ask people uh, that work for them and ask their customers uh, about issues that they're dealing with and problems that they're dealing with. 
when you have a problem in the plant, you just go ask the people working in the plant. They always know what's wrong. They usually know how to fix it. But too often, people in leadership positions think because they have uh, an executive title behind their name or they have a college degree or they've got a master's degree that they know more than the people doing the work. And that is not true. Your sales force knows more about what's going on in sales than, than you as the chief executive do. And when you have a problem in sales, you go talk to the people in the sales force. And as I said earlier, uh, they always know what's wrong. They usually know how to fix it. And they wonder why you've been allowing it to go, long, go on as long as you have. So I think those things, walking the talk, honesty and integrity and humility would be the most important traits of a leader. Mm. No, I love that. And, and I agree a hundred percent. And, uh, you know, I, I think those themes really carry throughout your book. Uh, listeners, you know that, that I'm a big fan of design and layout on books. And I, I comment on it whenever something really sticks out to me. So, uh, you know, first of all, I really love, uh, the, the cover art for build a better organization. Uh, listeners, go grab a copy of this book so you can see what I'm talking about here. But I like kind of this idea of this this foundation being built from the ground up, uh, kind of visualized uh, on the cover. But I also like how the book is laid out. You get it laid out in three parts here, which kind of line up with your answer there, culture, people, and leadership. And so what I want to do is, is uh, what I typically do is walk through the book with you I want to leave the listeners here with enough to uh, uh, to want to go get the book, but so we don't give everything away necessarily. Um, so in part one, you talk about something here that uh, I love the way you put this. In chapter two, you talk about defining your corporate character. And I like the fact that you use corporate character instead of culture. So first of all, was that in, uh, an intentional choice of words? Yes, it was. Our corporate character is one of three parts of our culture. And the character of an organization are things like, uh, you know, how do you expect people to perform their jobs? How do you feel about your employees? How do you feel about your customers? Uh, what's your work ethic? Uh, and, and those kinds of things. And, uh, and uh, I think every company has to define what their character is for a, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is what are the people that work for you? What are the expectations you have of them? Number one. Number two, how do you determine whether someone you're about to hire in your organization is compatible with your character unless you define what your character is? Uh, and then uh, you, you sort of set a norm for how people are supposed to go about doing their jobs each day. And so without that clearly understood in an organization, you have oftentimes people going in different directions, doing things that are completely out of sync with uh, uh, what the, the top people in the company expect because the top people in the company have not laid clearly out what those expectations are. Yeah, well, that is so important there. And as you were talking, I was reminded of the, you know, the famous uh, coach John Wooden quote, uh, talking about the difference between reputation and character. And, you know, the short version, reputation is what other people think you are. Character is what you actually are. Um, and uh, uh, that's kind of what I, I heard there that I hope listeners take away is, is you're talking about really getting to the, the meat of who you are as an organization, right? Exactly. And that, that came about, Earl, many years ago, and this is uh, discussed in the book, uh, when we lost a few management people, and we were very small at the time, and uh, while it wasn't, uh, you could count them on one hand, but it was more than we wanted to lose, 
And we had a meeting on a Saturday morning and talked about why did we lose uh, these people. We discussed each one in some depth. And in that meeting, uh, our head of human resources said, uh, well, those people, most of those people were not a culture fit with our company. And we said, well, what do you mean a culture fit? And uh, his name was Bill Miller. And he said, well, he said, Bob, a culture fit, you know, they, we work harder than most companies. We have higher expectations than most companies. We're very direct in our communication. Uh, there's a number of things we, we, we insist on honesty and integrity. And uh, a lot of these people we, we hired didn't fit that culture. And we thought about that, and after discussing it, we agreed with him, and we concluded that that was really our fault, that we had not done a good job of defining what our culture was, uh, what our principal objective was, what our corporate character was, uh, what our management system was, and therefore, we really weren't interviewing people uh, in a way that, uh, that we could determine where they were going to be a culture fit, and that was not only bad for us, but it was bad for the person we hired because people who didn't fit our culture uh, weren't going to be happy, weren't going to be successful, weren't going to get promoted, and uh, in every case, we decided we shouldn't have hired them in the first place. And that led us to creating a very meticulous hiring system, as we called it, uh, to make sure, number one, that the person we were trying to hire uh, was capable of doing the job. But secondly, and even more importantly, were they compatible with our organization? Mm. Well, that is a great story. And, and you just touched on something that, that I chat about a lot uh, with folks that I'm coaching, uh, that I'm working with, um, and on this show. And that was ownership, right? Because in that moment, it would have been very easy for y'all to sit back and say, yeah, well, you know, that's their loss. You know, I can't believe they don't want to work here. How dare they? You could have made a bunch of excuses as to why it was their problem that they left and you were doing everything right. But it sounds like you all took ownership of, hey, we need to analyze what happened and, and make some changes from it. And uh, sounds like on the back end, uh, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about this meticulous hiring system, because it sounds like on the back end, by taking ownership, you all really put some systems in place that set, sent us up for uh, a lot of future success, right? Absolutely. And, you know, taking ownership, uh, in our judgment, meant that any time we lost any employee who we called partners, we felt it was our fault. Uh, we either shouldn't have hired them. We didn't train them properly. We didn't motivate them properly. We didn't give them proper feedback. Now, there were some rare exceptions to that where some maybe uh, somebody had to, to go back to their home city because their parent was in, in poor health and uh, they were close to death and they needed to be with them and we didn't happen to have a job in that city. There were some exceptions to that. But when we lost somebody, we our first uh, reaction was, what did we do wrong? And we would sit down and analyze every time we had a, a employee defection uh, that what did we do wrong? What could we have done differently? And so, uh, in fact, one of the things I say in my book is I believe uh, the first place to look when you have a problem is in the mirror. What could you have done differently? How could you have changed the outcome as opposed to looking out the window, which is the natural human tendency? Mm. No, again, you're, you're singing to my heart here because I've had, you know, I've been in, in speaking engagements and I've got a line that I'll say is, is uh, teams succeed, leaders fail. And I'll inevitably get people, you know, kind of push back. And, and I say exactly what you just said there. Look, 
the the issue is you should have done this. You should have done that. You put this person in the wrong position. And, and I love I love to hear somebody with that experience level uh, kind of validate that that thought line. So I really appreciate that. But I also want to touch on something there because I'm really kind of curious here. You mentioned those exceptions, if you will, where there's extenuating circumstances. I would imagine just by reading a book and and uh, kind of getting familiarized with with your thought process that uh, those folks, it, you, you seem like an organization that probably handled those folks with a lot of grace. And if their situation changed, uh, did they have an avenue to come back to the company? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, when we when when someone would come in and resign at just about any level in the company, even at the hourly level we would put a full court press on that person to determine why they were leaving. Could we change their mind? And I could tell you that we probably uh, maybe 20, 25% of the time talk people out of leaving that we didn't want to lose. And when we lost somebody we didn't want to lose, we would make it very clear to them that the door was open. We thought very highly of them. We'd love to have them back. If this new thing doesn't work out like you think it will, uh, you know how to get a hold of us. And then from time to time, we would even touch base with them to see if we couldn't get them to back. Because uh, business is all about people. Uh, uh, You know, great coaches don't win games without great players. And if you don't have great players on your team, you're not going to win games. And you got to fight like crazy not to lose a a great player. Yeah, no, I love it. And and the message that that sends, right, is uh, I've used this quote on here a few times, and I really love it by uh, Dr. Brene Brown, because she she puts it uh, very, very simply. She goes, people give a damn if you give a damn. And by showing that level of emotional intelligence and empathy and support, you're telling your people, hey, I give a damn. And inevitably, and I'm kind of curious if you have any stories to share on this, but I would say inevitably people don't find that in other organizations and they end up coming back and, and valuing working for CentOS even more, right? Absolutely. In fact, we had we had one fellow that left our company and he was gone six weeks. And he called up his boss and he said, can I come back? And we said, why? And he said, well, somebody in this company that I just joined did something that at CentOS, they would have been fired in a, in a New York minute. And this company, because they were a good performer, uh, has not let them go, reprimanded them slightly, and allowed them to stay in the job. And he said, I have concluded in six weeks, I can't work here. Can you? Can I get my old job back? And we welcome him back with open arms. We've had that happen a lot because, uh, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side, so to speak, or sometimes we didn't promote somebody and they felt they were ready for the next job, so they left. Uh, we got a lot of those people back uh, because we let them know we wanted them back if the opportunity ever presented itself. Mm. Again, another valuable lesson there that I hope listeners took away is, is you know, nobody is uh, nobody's too important to, to be let go. And if you keep those people on just because they're, quote, good performers, uh, but terrible employees, you're going to lose people. And you're going to have an organization like Centos uh, there to scoop them up. Uh, so keep those people around at your own peril. That is a uh, that is a great lesson there. Yeah, well, Earl, that reminds me of a uh, conversation I had early in my career with a, a top re- human resource person at General Electric. He told me they put all their people in four quadrants. On one side of the axis was was results. On the other side of the axis was compatibility with their culture and values. And he said, you know, people in the top right-hand box, those were people who had great results 
and were very compatible with the organization. He said, we really took care of those people. They got double digit pay increases, stock options. We made sure they, that we really had, uh, were taking care of them very well. The people in the bottom right, bottom left quadrant, quadrant would be people with poor results and not compatible with your values. Those were easy. You should just ask them to leave or, or fire them. Uh, but the people in the upper, uh, or the bottom right hand quadrant, which would be people who were not producing results, but were compatible with your values. He said, we would give those people three or four chances to figure out how to be successful. He said, but the people in the upper left hand quadrant, where people were producing good results, but were not compatible with the company's values. He said, we get rid of them. And we did the same thing at CentOS. And too many companies allow a top performer who is not compatible with the company values to hang around. And that's exactly what happened in this case where this gentleman came back to us in six weeks. Uh, and and those people are poison. You know, the old line, one rotten apple spoils the entire barrel. Well, that's what happens when you allow those people to stay. You cannot tolerate people who are not compatible with your values. If they're not honest, if they don't have integrity, if they cheat on expense accounts, if they lie to people, you got to get them out of your organization as fast as you can. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And look, again, listeners, what what Bob just said there is so valuable. It's scary. I mean, I, I'm sure there's probably some times where maybe you had to make that decision and it, it probably scared you to death because this person was such a high performer, right? Yes, absolutely. But, but we didn't have to think about it long because we understood the concept very well. Well, and that is kind of the whole point of, of part one is if you take the time uh, and, and you get these things laid out, you understand the ethics you're going to live by, you've established those management systems, you define the corporate character, uh, you've determined your principal objectives. Folks, these are all the, the uh, part one chapter titles here. If you've taken the time to do all of those things, you, you like, like Bob just said, you take the scare out of it. I mean, it's still going to concern you a little bit, but you know, that's the right thing to do. You've, you've, you've predetermined what your actions are going to be because you're going to live up to the things that you've built. Right. Yeah, exactly. And most important thing there, Earl, is that the people at the top have to walk the talk. You can't, you can't say you do something if the top people in the company don't do it because then it's not worth the paper it's written on. Uh, and so we preach that to the top executives at all times that you have to uh, uh, live this life, so to speak, or follow these rules and, and, and expectations better than anybody else in the organization. Because if you're not doing it, you can't expect the people that work for you to do it. Love it. Love it. So part two is people. And we've talked about that quite a bit here as part one. But, you know, culture, people, leadership, those things are all inextricably linked to each other. Uh, but but this hiring process, like you start off uh, with chapter five, hiring the right people. And, and I think that is one of the places where I see most organizations really struggle because, you know, maybe they have an understaffed HR part, department. Maybe they outsource their HR department. Uh, maybe they just use kind of headhunter services or staffing services. And, you know, they're, they're just getting warm bodies into the system. But hiring the right people is way more than just getting a warm body into the system, right? Absolutely. That in our company began when we determined, number one, that the number one reason we were losing people is that we shouldn't have hired them in the first place. 
and we came to the conclusion that uh, our hiring process needed to be beefed up substantially and that we were, you know, hiring, like you say, a warm body, and that's the worst thing in the world you can do. And the reason so many people do it is that the hiring, the hiring process is very frustrating. Most of the time, the hiring manager has got a full-time job. He or she's working 50, 60 hours a week just trying to keep up with everything. And now you've got to take time to interview people and check references and do those sort of things. And there's a human tendency to... Uh, compromise when you're in that kind of a situation. And so what we did is we always had a minimum of five or six people involved in every hire, not just the hiring manager, uh, sometimes more. Uh, after those five or six people would have the interviews, they would all get together as a group and talk about this, the applicant. And uh, you'd be surprised, for example, how many times the same person will answer the same question differently to two or three different people. Uh, and, and so, uh, and if any of those people had even a hesitancy as to whether we should hire them, we didn't hire them and we'd start all over again because we recognized, uh, that, that if we didn't hire the right person, the chances of losing them went way up. The other thing we did is that we developed a cost of turnover calculation and we determined that even the lowest level person, the hourly janitor, cost two or three thousand dollars if you lost them when you look at the time to hire the new person orient the new person train the new person the inefficiency in the first month or two or three they're in the job or longer depending on the position and we had numbers like you know if you lost a sales rep it was hundred and fifty thousand dollars right out the door mm -hmm. so we would say to ourselves well we got to hire this person and, and and then we got to make them successful because it's going to cost us a fortune if we don't and so we, we developed the process. Uh, anybody who was involved in a hiring process went through a day and a half seminar on how to meticulously hire, what kind of questions to ask, what kind of answers to look for. And the whole focus of the interview was based on a principle of past behavior predicts future behavior. What did people do in the past in situations that they were confronted with because what they've done in the past, they will likely do in the future. So we'd ask a lot of situational questions like, what's the toughest decision you ever had to make in your life? Tell me about it. Have you ever fired anybody? Tell me about that. Who's the best boss you had in, in your career? Why? Why were they the best boss? Who's the worst boss you ever had in your career? Why were they worse, boss? And we'd ask all these kind of situational questions, and we would really learn about an applicant very, very well by asking those types of questions. And if we didn't get the and we usually had a general idea of what kind of answer we were looking for when we asked the question. And so it was a very thorough, thorough process. In fact, just about everybody we ever hired would say to themselves, how many more interviews do I have to go on before these people are going to offer me a job? Because we were so meticulous about it. We had to do it quickly so that we didn't frustrate an applicant. But uh, we had a very, very low turnover rate compared to our competitors, uh, extremely low with management people uh, because we were so meticulous in the hiring process. Well, yeah, and I, and I love those types of hiring processes uh, because, you know, being a, uh, a Marine myself, you know, I, I have a great appreciation for having to go through that to kind of earn the title, having to, to really put yourself out there to to get that job, if you will. And, and in my experiences in organizations that do what you're talking about there, 
there's that same kind of sense of pride of I made it through. Uh, they must have really seen something in me uh, because they invested a lot of time in me in this process. And now they almost have this really th- this desire to perform. So you don't feel like you wasted your time. Did, did you see a lot of that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one other thing that I failed to mention is in my experience in hiring people, when I hired someone that I really felt good about, I felt like they were the perfect candidate. Uh, they had the, the, the job experience to do the job. We, they appeared to be compatible with our organization. I was still wrong probably 20% of the time. But here's the lesson. When I hired someone that I was lukewarm about, one of the references didn't check out quite as well as we had hoped. Uh, one of the people in the meeting felt that was, was lukewarm about hiring them. When I hired somebody I was lukewarm about, I was wrong every single time. So never, ever hire someone you're lukewarm about hiring. You got to be excited about hiring them. Yeah. No, I love it. And, and, and the intentionality about those questions is something else I love too, because I've, I've ran the gambit with this. I went into an organization one time that was having a lot of turnover. Uh, they were having just a lot of issues, uh, in general. And we started talking about the hiring process and I asked them the question. I said, so, you know, what types of questions do you ask in the interview? And said, well, we have to standardize everything. So everybody gets interviewed the same way. I'm like, okay, well, but what types of questions? Well, monster.com has this list of the top 100 interview questions that you should ask. So we just go through and we pick 10 of those and that's the questions we ask. And I said, what are you trying to learn from those questions? Well, we just want to hear their response. They had no clue what, what you're just talking about here. They had no clue what types of questions to ask and what they were trying to learn about that person. And again, folks, I hope you took away what Bob was talking about there by taking that time, building out those questions and knowing what it is, not verbatim the answer you want to hear, but you're trying to find something out about that person's character and and compatibility, right? Yeah, exactly. And you have to, you can't have total standardized lists because sometimes one, one answer leads to the next question, so to speak. And so if somebody gives you an answer that doesn't quite make sense to you, I would probe. The other thing uh, I would always do uh, in, in my interviews is ask the applicant, in your last two performance reviews, what areas of improvement did your boss ask you to focus on and work on to improve? And then I would, I, we always required the hiring manager to do the reference checking. And what I would call the reference, I would ask the, the person that he worked for or she worked for the very same question. What kind of areas did you ask this applicant to improve in? You'd be surprised at how often the answers were totally different. Uh, and so, uh, and so, you know, you just, you, you did, that's part of the thoroughness of it. We, I called every single, I would ask people, now who did you work for at this company? Uh, Joe Smith. Was Joe Smith still with the company? Yeah, I believe he is. Or no, he left. Well, where did he go? He retired. Well, where does he live? I'd find Joe Smith. You don't want to call and ask for the human resources department because they will tell you, yes, they worked here those dates. And if you have a salary figure, they will confirm it. They won't tell you anything else because that's what the lawyers tell them they're allowed to say. I would talk to the person they work for always because that's where you get the answers. Right. A hundred percent. So I'm curious, you, you've mentioned a couple of questions right now, but just out of curiosity, what was your favorite interview question to ask somebody? What's the toughest decision you ever made in your life? Mm. 
because that would usually that would end up in a five or ten minute discussion usually because they would tell me and I'd say oh okay well how did that work out uh, when you made that decision how did it work out how do you feel about it now uh, did you consider doing this did you consider doing that and so uh, I, I think that's that's a because you know those those kinds of difficult decisions if a person is uh, the kind of person you're looking for they gave them a lot of thought I would always ask, well, why did you make that decision as opposed to doing this or as opposed to doing that? And so I was learning about their thought process because if they ran into that same problem with us, they would probably handle it the same way. And if I didn't like the answer I got in how they handled it or they didn't give it enough thought, uh, you know, for example, if they said, well, the first time I had to hire somebody or fire somebody was my toughest decision. And I said, well, how, how, why did you lose that person? Well, they, they just couldn't get the job done. Well, why couldn't they get the job done? Well, uh, and I, I, how much training did you give them? How much help did you give them? Did you work closely with them? Did you do this? I, I mean, I just keep firing questions at people. And uh, the answers would help me determine, was this person going to fit in our company? Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Um, so chapter seven is holding on to your best people. Now, we've talked quite a bit about that already, like some of the, the things with CentOS, but I'm just kind of curious, in this chapter, um, is there anything that, that's real specific to this that we haven't talked about yet that, that helped you hold on to those best people? Well, I think you have to pay them uh, competitively, at least, if not a little above competitive, your, your best people. Uh, you have to stay close to them. Uh, you have to give them feedback. We had performance reviews on a regular basis, uh, uh, at least annually, of every six months for the first year. You were in the first year, you'd go one, have one in six months, and then in a year, and then a year after. But I would always uh, take my people's temperature. Uh, you know, uh, how you doing today? How's the job going? You happy? Is this new job turned out the way you thought it would? Uh, you have any problems or anything I can do to help you with? Uh, and if, if the last question I would always ask in every performance review, is there anything I can do differently to help you perform better? Uh, because if they didn't feel like I was giving them enough time or enough training or something like that, I wanted to know about it and I wanted to deal with it. So I think taking people's temperature is very, very important uh, because sometimes, uh, you know, you can sense when somebody's got a problem they may not want to talk about. Perhaps they have a personal issue that's affecting their performance. So I think if you develop a relationship with people where the, you're going to be honest with them, they're going to be honest with you, uh, you can take their temperature on a regular basis to be sure that that everything's okay. Yeah, no, and, and I love that that last question there. Is, is there anything that, that I can do? And, you know, I'm kind of curious your experiences on that. So, because I, I know folks who, I've worked with folks who have asked that question, but they're like, you know, Earl, they, they never give me any feedback. They always tell me I'm just doing great. I must be the best boss ever. And I really have to have the conversation with them. It's like, look, if your people are afraid to give you feedback, then you've got a bigger issue uh, so were you able to get folks to to actually give you some type of feedback for improvement? Yes, I was, but not initially. It usually took a year to a year and a half, three performance reviews before they realized that uh, that I really cared about them, that I wanted them to succeed. I wanted them to, to be successful. I wanted to help them in any way I could because I would demonstrate that. And so I would say frequently the first 
year somebody worked for me, they were a little reluctant because they didn't know how the boss was going to react. So you have to have enough interactions with those people before they realize, you know, you can say anything you want to Bob. You can ask Bob any question you want to ask him. You can tell him you disagree with him and he's not going to get mad at you. And so it's up to the boss to create that environment. And it takes a while where people feel comfortable saying how they really feel. I can, I can hear my listeners and I do mean I can hear my listeners rolling their eyes right now because they probably know what I'm getting ready to say because I say it a lot on this podcast. Leadership is just building relationships. And that's what you're talking about. You got to build the relationships so you can get that trust factor uh, flowing both ways, right? Absolutely. Love it. Um, so, and I might be putting you on the spot here a little bit, but I'm just kind of curious. So far, we've talked a lot about what CentOS did and what the culture did, but what is something that you, Bob Colehep, did to help? hold on to those best people? What is something you personally would do? Well, a couple things come to mind. Uh, Everybody in our company uh, who had an anniversary of five years and five-year increments, I would get a list every year that in in May, these 12 people are going to have their five or 10 or 15 years with the company. I would make it my business in every case to call those people up And if it was you, I'd say, Earl, I see that today is your 10-year anniversary with CentOS. Earl, I just want you to know, I'm proud that you're my partner. I'm proud to tell you how, what a great job you've done. I'm proud to uh, tell you how much I think of you and how, how you've helped us build a great company. Without people like you, we couldn't build this company into the great company we built it. I appreciate, appreciate it, and I'm proud to call you partner. Now, that took what? 30 seconds to say, the feedback I got when I did that, and these would be people in, in California, they'd be in Boston, they'd be all over the country. Uh, I did that with every person that I that I knew in the company that, uh, that either worked for me or ever worked with or I ever touched in any way. And as we got bigger, that got harder to do. Sometimes it, I spent quite a bit of time on the phone. Uh, but those those little things... And in fact, one of the things I say in my book, little things don't mean a lot. Little things mean everything. Little things like that phone call. Little things about asking about their sick grandmother. Little things about, uh, you know, showing up at weddings, showing up at funerals. Those kinds of things. Let people know you care about them. And if you, if people think you care about them, they'll walk through fire for you. It's got to be sincere. It's got to be real. But all those kinds of little things, sending flyers, calling phone calls, writing people little notes, uh, thanking them in front of their peers, uh, telling people in front of their peers how proud you are of the performance they had. Those kinds of things endear people to you. And we, we did them all the time. I did them and everybody in our company did them. Yeah, no, and I love that word of caution there about sincerity because it reminds me of a gentleman I worked with one time who said he did those things, uh, but everything was automated. You know, he'd put in a like a Google Calendar alert that would send an automatic email, and it was not personal. No. Um, and, and and like you said, people know and, and and people care when you take that personal touch. And like you said, thirty seconds. Yeah, once you get you know a few hundred people, thousand plus people, thirty seconds adds up <laughs> quite quickly. But you know, you, that's that's human nature. People want to be recognized. They want to feel like they're cared about. And, and I love hearing that because you know that's something I wish uh, a lot more organizations would do. It doesn't cost anything. It costs a little bit of time. 
but the 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 payoff is immeasurable. Absolutely. Um, I love it. I love it there. Um all right. So, let's get into chapter 3 here because I'm really I'm really interested to hear your spin on uh these uh, you start off part 3 chapter 8 is uh the nine characteristics of great leaders. So let me ask you this before we get into those. Where did you where did these characteristics come from? Were they people who inspired you? Were they things that you learned through your career? Were they a good combination of the two? It was those two and reading that I've done on leadership. It was a combination of those three things. Uh, I was fortunate to work for uh, the founder of our company, a gentleman named Dick Farmer, who just passed away this past summer. Uh, he was my mentor, and uh, I learned so much from him. Uh, uh, and so uh, those three, him, and I was involved in a university where I saw a Jesuit priest who was a great leader. Uh, and uh, so I've been around some great leaders. I've done a lot of reading about great leaders. And the other thing in my own experience, I've made every mistake there is to make just about as a leader. Uh, and I've often said uh, the only people that don't make mistakes are the people that don't do anything. The people that you got to worry about are the people that keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, and so I learned from those mistakes. When I made a mistake as a leader, I stepped back. Uh, sometimes my boss helped me with it. Sometimes I did it on my own and said, you know, boy, I should have never done that. I'll never do that one again. And so it was a combination of those three things. No, I love it. I love it. And I love some of these characteristics here. And, and you know, uh, we don't really necessarily have time to get into all of them right here. But folks, again, grab yourself a copy of the book, Build a Better Organization, How Effective Leadership and Strong Culture Can Create a High Performance Organization by our guest, Bob Kolheb. Uh, but one that I really love, and this this is something that really spoke to me, just the 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 title of this characteristic, if you will. Uh, they attract followers. And, and that's one thing that I have, um, I'll say, I won't say a, a hard time, but a more difficult time getting a lot of leaders, and I'm using air quotes when I say leaders for these purposes, uh, to understand is nobody can make you a leader. Nobody can come up on high and say, you are going to follow Bob. Um no matter what your title is. Now, they may do what you say, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're following you. I always say leadership is a gift given to you from the people that choose to follow you. And that's what this characteristic is talking about here, right, is attracting those types of followers. Absolutely. And I think you, I talk at some length in the book about how to do that, but it has to do with uh, uh, setting the pace yourself, walking the talk, uh, being uh, accessible, uh, humility, uh, all those kinds of things. Uh, you know, sometimes people can get people to follow them for th- to do the wrong thing. I mean, Jim Jones got people to drink the Kool-Aid in Ghana and they all died. Uh, so he, he was good at getting people to follow him, but his, his objective wasn't very good. Uh, but uh, uh, so I think it's all of those things and, and that's critical because if, uh, if you can't create that kind of environment, you're going to ask people to take the hill and they're going to want to go up a different hill. No, I love that you point that out. And that, that could be a whole nother podcast discussion about, you know, rogue leadership, because we may not like to think of those people like Jim Jones as leaders, but the truth is they really are. Um, they, like you pointed out, they have ill intent, they have ill will, but 
you can't discount the fact that if you get that many people to do that voluntarily, you got some pretty killer, no pun intended, leadership skills. Adolf Hitler was a good leader in that that way, too. You know, yes. And again, uh, I've said that on this show before, and I'm going to throw the same thing out there. Listeners, that's not that's not us saying that he was a good person. That's not us saying that that what he did was right. That's just saying, hey, he was a good leader. He he inspired people to a cause. It was a terrible cause. It had terrible consequences, but he had those skills. Uh, so, you know, always always throw that out there because, you know, I don't want people hearing that and think, oh, well, Bob and Earl, there they go. No, that's not what this is about. Leadership comes in many forms. We always like to recognize the good leaders, but we have to learn those lessons from those bad leaders because if we don't, uh, and when I say bad leaders, leaders with bad intent, if we don't, those folks can crop up again. And you probably saw that happen maybe uh, a few times in your business where you put a lot of faith, time and effort into somebody who, you know, maybe was a bad fit. And, you know, maybe they tried to get a bunch of people to leave with them when they left or somehow, some way their leadership had a negative effect on the organization, right? Yeah, absolutely. Did see that. But, you know, the last trait, when I talk about leadership, the importance of it, and I say in its last, but it's really the foundation, it's honesty and integrity. Jim Jones and Adolf Hitler did not have honesty and integrity. They just mm-hmm. had one trait. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, I can't remember the episode number, but I, I speak with a gentleman named uh, Timothy Loopfer uh, about this, and it was charisma and why charisma is dangerous. A lot of folks think of charisma as a good leadership quality to have, and it, it can be, but those folks had a lot of charisma, and they use that to get people to do bad things. Uh, yeah, so no, I, I love that. And honesty and, te- and integrity, that is a, a, another great uh, characteristic that uh, – then I'm glad you worked in there. So folks, uh, again, go grab yourself a copy of the book and find out what the rest of these uh, characteristics are. Um, before we wrap up here, i kind of curious. There was another, you have another chapter here in the leadership section, uh, and we've talked about it a little bit, but learning from mistakes. Why is that one so valuable to, to building a better organization? Well, as I said before, everyone makes mistakes. Uh, and I think it's important that you create an environment where it's okay to make a mistake. Uh, you never want to allow somebody who works for you to make a mistake that's going to cost the company existence, is going to bankrupt the company, obviously. Uh, but uh, there have been many times when people would walk into my office with an idea that I thought was crazy. Uh, didn't make any sense and wasn't going to work, but it wasn't a big deal. And you can argue all day about whether I was right or they were right. But the I believe the level of innovation in any organization is directly related to the number of things you try. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb on his 676 try. If we'd have cut him off at 600, we'd all be standing around with camel candles and and flames in our offices and so forth. Um, and so uh, you, you have to create an environment where people can try things, where people can make mistakes, but you also have to learn from those mistakes. And the people you have to be worried about are the people who keep mistake, same, making the same mistake over and over and over again. Those people you got to deal with and you, you got to deal with them strongly. Uh, but you need to have an environment where people can make mistakes because that's the way you learn what works. You try 
try things. And so you should never be afraid to make a mistake and you should never create an environment where the people who work for you are afraid to make a mistake because then you won't learn new things. And when you do something that works, you keep doing more of it. When you do something that doesn't work, you stop it and try something else. No, and I could not agree more. I, I tell folks that was the first piece of leadership advice I got when I got to Paris Island and picked up in my uh, uh, my recruit platoon, uh, my senior drill instructor. He said, the first thing I want you to remember is the only bad mistake is one you make twice. And right. and that was it. Um, yep. <laughs> you know, and, and the rest was rest was history after that. So. Well, look, Bob, we've been chatting here for, you know, about 40 minutes or so, and it has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, but I'm just curious before we wrap up here, is there anything we didn't get a chance to touch on during this conversation uh, that you'd like to leave listeners with? Well, the one thing that comes to my mind, Earl, is this. I've been asked a number of times on these podcasts, what one trait do you think is most important for a person to achieve success and be a good leader? And I've always answered that question very quickly because I believe the one trait is dogged determination. People who achieve anything in life are, are, are going to have to have the determination to get back up when they get knocked down. You will get knocked down. The road to success is always under construction. But the people that achieve a lot in life are the people who don't take no for an answer, who have the mindset, well, I want to accomplish something. The only question in my mind is how long is it going to take me to get there, not whether I'm going to get there. And that's dogged determination. And that trait, I believe, whether you're in business, whether you're in the medical profession, whether you're in politics, whatever it might be, that trait of dogged determination is the common trait you see in every successful person. Mm-hmm. I love that. And and I agree with you completely. So Bob, folks do want to go and uh, get a copy of the book. I'm just going to speak that into existence. You want to go get a copy of this book and have it set on your, your bookshelf. They want to find out more about you, uh, maybe any services you provide, how to work with you. Uh, what are some good ways for folks to find out more about Bob Colehip? Well, I have a website called robertcolehep.com. And on that website, it has a number of articles I've written, all the podcasts I've done, uh, and uh, a, a bio on myself. And it also gives you the opportunity to buy the book on the website through Pathway. The book's also available at uh, Barnes & Noble and at Amazon. Uh, and so the, uh, going to my website, robertcolehep.com, would give you a, a great insight about what I'm all about and more about what the book's about. All right. No, I love it. Well, Bob. Thank you very much for being with me and my listeners. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you having this discussion with us. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to seeing what it is that uh, you, you go out there and accomplish next. You've done a lot, but I can't wait to see what, what comes next. So thank you very much for being with us on the Responsible Leadership Podcast today. You're welcome. And Earl, thank you so much for having me. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode.
Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Electric acid. Electric acid.